0: for sure you're 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 scared and it's the unknown cuz at that point I like nobody could tell you what was going to happen right or when cases is going to go up or down this week or next week and does that mean they're going to do more surgeries or less surgeries who would know the answer to that
1: Chances are you or someone you know has been personally affected by heart disease and stroke. They can devastate lives, sometimes suddenly, but there's hope. I'm Caroline Lavallée and you're listening to The Beat, a podcast by Heart and Stroke with support from our generous donors. In each episode, we're joined by Canada's leading physicians and experts to discuss the most pressing issues related to heart and brain health. And you'll be inspired by the real stories from people living with heart disease and stroke. Thanks for listening. Now let's get into the episode. It's difficult to comprehend the lasting implications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Everyone has been impacted, many tragically. And we know that the virus is likely to be with us for a long time to come. Over the past two years, hospitals and healthcare providers shifted to treat people that were critically ill with COVID. This shift saved lives, but it also had consequences for those that didn't receive timely treatment for heart disease and stroke. The surgery backlogs still exist today, and no one knows when healthcare systems will catch up. In this episode, we'll hear from Dr. Claire Adzima, an ER physician. And Dr. Andrew Cron, a cardiologist and past president of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. We'll also hear from Paul King, who underwent bypass surgery during the pandemic. For over two years, Dr. Claire Adzema has been working on the front lines of the pandemic. She is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and a clinical scientist in Toronto. She witnessed a disturbing drop in heart and stroke patients in the ER during the multiple waves of COVID-19.
2: On a a regular day, I might see three, four chest pain patients. I might see one heart attack, a couple of patients presenting potentially with heart failure or stroke and that would be pretty normal, um, regular part of my care. Whereas during COVID, certainly during the first wave, it was almost like there was tumbleweeds going through the ER. I saw patients with COVID, with bad COVID, and and the really sick cancer patients, but all those other chest pain patients, patients with shortness of breath from cardiovascular causes, with strokes. Where were they? You know, they just. I, I wonder if they're just sitting at home with these pains, or or what they're doing. Uh, to try and mitigate them. And, and then once the first wave ended, then we got this incredible wave of very sick, complicated patients. Normally I can get through, you know, the issues that the patient presented with in a pretty timely way. And it was then taking me more than double the amount of time because it's not just that they have one issue like chest pain. They also have all these other issues that have snowballed. So it was taking a long time to try and fix patients up a little bit. And they were being admitted to hospital much more often because things had gotten so bad that I couldn't fix it within within one visit to the ER.
1: Dr. Andrew Cron, who leads the Division of Cardiology at the University of British Columbia, is also concerned about the long-term health of people who stayed away from the hospital for fear of catching COVID.
3: I think the practical part of it is some of the individuals who didn't seek medical attention when they needed to, will be left with an extent of disease that sometimes we could have mitigated. Let's take a practical example, like a person with an acute stroke who stays home, loses the window of either removing or busting up a clot that causes the stroke and then is left more disabled. The same thing is true for people who have a heart attack, who will then have heart damage that we could have saved with an urgent angioplasty, for example, to stenting, uh, where they're le- then left with more heart failure.
1: When pandemic lockdowns began in March 2020, nobody knew how COVID-19 would impact people living with heart disease and stroke. Time has revealed that the risks are severe.
2: Whatever you have in the background, it's going to be worsened by having COVID. Because, you know, if your heart's not getting enough blood supply because your coronaries are a little bit jammed up, but it's getting enough and then you get COVID and it's got to pump three times as fast, uh, because you're sick with something and that COVID's making your blood vessels open up. Now your heart's going to get, you know, pumping three times as fast and it's going to get tired faster. And same as if you have a heart attack. We also know that COVID is a very unique virus and that it causes clotting. And if you get clots and clots go to your brain, then you're going to have a stroke. So if you already are predisposed to having strokes, you know, if you get COVID now, it's even more likely that you'll get another stroke.
1: If getting COVID-19 puts heart and stroke patients at serious risk, then they must do all they can to stay protected. Dr. Cron tells his patients that staying protected includes getting vaccinated.
3: The message that I send to patients is to say, you're right, you have heart disease and I understand that you're afraid. What I do know on the other side of this is that if we make sure everyone's vaccinated, That really provides both individuals and we as a population with protection from the severe illness that's costing lives. We've lost track of the fact people are dying from this every day, and most are not vaccinated. So as scared as you are, you know, I hate to say it, but take the plunge, pardon the pun, uh, because on balance you'll protect yourself, but also protect the people around you.
1: While many parts of the country were in lockdown, Paul King and his wife enjoyed hiking the trails around their home in Owen Sound, Ontario. Paul was in his late 50s and kept active playing hockey regularly. So he didn't find the hikes that strenuous. Until one autumn day in November, 2020.
0: Right out our front door here, we have um the escarpment and it connects up to the Bruce trail. So there's a you know a fairly steep sort of switchback path that goes up to the top to the trails and there's a conservation area and such. So uh, we would walk this all all the time. I was walking, walking up that hill, really started to feel um, sort of pains in the top part of your left part of your chest, uh, mild pains, and then uh, sort of a, a numbness in my left arm. Thought it was odd, got to the top and I, um, got my phone out and Googled, you know, what heart attack symptoms are and, and, you know, it it wasn't having a heart attack per se, but there's definitely symptoms there that related to, you know, something going on with the heart.
1: Paul continued on his walk that day, five kilometers in all, but decided to make an appointment with his doctor.
0: You know, I, if I'd been sort of in a busy, busy life mode that we had been before pandemic, I probably would have just sloughed it off.
1: Paul's doctor ordered some blood work, but the results didn't point to anything serious. A stress test was scheduled in February 2021, and that led to another one a couple of months later. Luckily, a snowstorm caused multiple cancellations at the hospital, and Paul was able to have his second stress test just two weeks later
0: this time they do an ultrasound. So they get you on the treadmill for your 10 or 15. It was probably like 10 minutes. You know, I was still kind of having these symptoms uh, in the arm. Then they, they lay you down and they, they get the ultrasound uh, going around. Then the the doctor said, well, I'm going to send you to, to Kitchener for an angiogram. And I go, well, you know, what does that mean? Like, what are you seeing? And he said, well, we think there's something there. We can't really see it. Um, but I think, you know, it'd be a good thing to get, a, to get an angiogram. And at that point, I do not even know what an angiogram is or was.
1: <laughs> Up to this point, the COVID-19 case counts were low in his community. So Paul felt safe going to the hospital. Everyone was taking the necessary precautions. It wasn't until he was in the larger hospital in Kitchener for his angiogram that Paul started to notice the severe impacts the pandemic was having.
0: You kind of get wheeled out to the hallway and then he comes out and he's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in a bit, bit of shock at that point. You know, the hospital's in a bit of a turmoil because it's, it's under construction. And I think maybe part of it was because of COVID, but there, you know, there's, Plastic sheets hanging up and you're kind of in this hallway and the doctor kind of comes over and he says, yeah, you know, uh, you've got these blockages.
1: Paul's wife, Susan, had to stay in the car that day. She wasn't with him when he received the difficult news that he needed bypass surgery. Together, they returned home to Owen Sound and waited for several weeks to hear about a date for Paul's surgery. Those were hard weeks as Paul worried that he could have a heart attack any day.
0: So that was sort of the third wave. So then, you know, they kind of opened things up. And then all of a sudden, kind of in in March, it started to go sideways again. And things were really starting to get tightened down. And then that's when they started saying, you know, we're going to start restricting uh, surgeries in the, in the hospitals and such. And then you go, oh, you know, wow, like now, now, where where am i <laughs> you know i mean for sure you're 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 scared and the, it's the it's the unknown cuz at that point I don't, like nobody could tell you what was going to happen right or when you know the cases cases going to go up or down this week or next week and does that mean they're going to do more surgeries or less surgeries like how who who would know the answer
3: to that
1: Dr. Kron has seen the effects of longer surgery wait times firsthand.
3: For somebody struggling with the need to wait and maybe longer waits than they uh, thought was reasonable and so on. On the one hand, I completely empathize. This is a problem. It reflects the lack of capacity in our system to be able to do things in a timely way. And it's very difficult to wait. It's hard to be patient. People are often scared. Um, That's understandable. And they also need information about their condition and how reasonable it is to wait. The other side of it is the healthcare system is trying to, for example, look at the priorities of the people who have to wait to make sure people who are in particularly imminent danger or who are unstable are looked after as quickly as possible. We have some of these processes called triage in place before COVID happened, but we've doubled our efforts and in fact made some guidance on the question of how you should be revisiting patient status to make sure that they're stable, that things aren't worse, that nothing has changed, and so on, to ensure that the people who need it the quickest are are undergoing the procedures, as an example.
1: Paul was experiencing what thousands of people across Canada were going through. COVID was taking precedence over other procedures across the board.
2: Well, first of all, just on a very basic level, you know, surgeries were stopped uh, across Ontario, across, you know, in many regions because they're considered elective surgeries, which is sort of a loose term. That means in comparison to an emergent surgery where you come in having a heart attack right there on the bed and you've got to be swept upstairs to the operating room. And elective means that we're going to book it, but it still means that you need it, whether or not you are likely to have a heart attack if you don't have it in the next short while. Or if you're a cancer patient and you need the cancer taken out, that's still considered elective. So all of those surgeries were completely stopped because we needed the beds for COVID
1: patients. Day after day, Paul nervously checked the mail for news. Finally, after a couple of cancellations and rescheduled dates, the day for his surgery arrived. Susan drove him to the hospital for 6 a.m.
0: Yeah, you know, I remember that there was a guy getting out of the cab or a car with his, with his mother. And he said, you might want to just stand back a little bit. We're not sure she might have COVID and we're following these people into the emergency ward. And you go like, that was, a, that was kind of a real scary time. Cause then you're in one of these old 1950, uh, waiting rooms, uh, emergency rooms, and it's pretty, pretty jam packed. And there's, everybody's got plexiglass up and it's, you know, you kind of, trying to keep your distance, you know, we had to answer our 20 questions or whatever, and then we got pushed over to the intake for the surgery. So then my, that's the last point I could see my, my, my wife, she, she kind of dropped me off at that point, And then they, they took me upstairs from there.
1: The operation included seven bypasses and took longer than expected. It was a stressful eight-hour wait for Paul's wife, and she was only allowed to visit him for 20 minutes, a few days after the surgery, the hospital had a cardiac intensive care unit, but it had been converted to a COVID ward.
0: So this makeshift uh, ICU unit it was pretty pretty cramped, and they could tell for the workers it wasn't ideal for them because they're used to their you know the, their their normal space. Every second bed was. Empty because that's how they were doing the spacing, and I know there was one. There was one corner that had a sort of two by fours and a plastic sheet up for the plastic sheet hanging down. There was one guy in there, and then there was a couple rooms where they had different people uh, that were kind of in a little bit more isolated, I guess.
1: After a few days in the makeshift ICU, and then another few in rehab, Paul was released. They say timing. Is everything.
0: And then that Delta variant popped up and Kitchener was a hotspot. And that hospital had some Delta variant problems. I was talking to the cardiologists up here. I don't really know the specifics, but they, they had another, um, they, they created another backlog basically about a week or two after I, I got out of the hospital. So the, the little window that I got in and out of was... Uh, to me, it was amazing, um, amazing luck or whatever.
1: Surgery backlogs are still a problem today, and it is difficult to know if and when hospitals will be able to catch up.
2: You know, obviously, we're trying to book uh, more surgeries and, you know, do overtime. The problem is the people who do this, myself and all the healthcare workers, are just burned out and trying to ask, like, I'm working many, many shifts in the ER right now, and and it's it's impinging on my ability to do research, but we just need people to cover the ER because, you know, people have retired if they could, or they're burnt out, or they're sick with COVID. And we've hired many, many more people, uh, both, you know, in the emergency room and in, in other areas, nurses, allied health, physicians, but there's sort of a max that you can put out so quickly. And of course, you know, People who don't have much experience need support from people with more experience. So that also is gonna play into how well we can um, manage these diseases effectively.
3: In terms of the duration that it's gonna take to catch up, I think it's a little bit of a contextual question. So for example, in some systems, they're even more at capacity than others in terms of the reserve that's built in, or they have the ability to attract or retain staff to be able to help to work more. In the short term. I think if we assume that there'll be no more lap and that we'll be able to run the, at the capacity that we choose to then most systems by the end of 22 will be in a pretty in pretty good shape back to where we were. This will probably bring more light to the question about waitlist management because in fact it's a background phenomenon that's been going on for 20 years. And there may be some areas where, because it's dependent on such a small capacity, let's take, for example, some of the smaller provinces or territories where there's only a single place that does operations of this type, as an example. They may struggle more because they literally don't have any alternatives in a larger system to be able to you know, pitch in, if you like.
1: The hours of treating COVID patients have been endless for hospital staff. It's difficult to imagine there could be any positives to come from these last two years. But virtual care is one area where both healthcare providers and patients are seeing exciting potential. That's when you connect with your healthcare provider by phone or through video conferencing instead of in person.
3: We had lockdown periods where we said we should offer this kind of virtual care for patients and their families. And we said we should do that most, if not all the time. So the scope of care that involves bringing care to the patient instead of the other way around has changed dramatically and is the future of health care. And so if you take an example like somebody who lives 150 kilometers away, whose daughter has to take the day off work, go pick her mother up, bring her all the way into Vancouver, see the specialist... Pay $20 for parking, create a bigger carbon footprint, and right now can go to her mother's place with her laptop, Zoom with my team, for example, get similar quality of care as long as the safety uh, procedures are in place to make sure that she's not unstable or needs to be seen by a physician in person, and the world's a better place because of it.
1: We know that variants of this virus will be with us for some time to come. For anyone who is living with heart disease or stroke, there are steps you can take to stay safe. So my advice for
2: patients with cardiovascular disease uh, around COVID is first, obviously, most important to get all three COVID vaccinations. If they recommend a fourth, do it. You want to get your antigen levels up there so that it can fight off uh, COVID. Second thing, uh, is to be an active patient and and to prevent in the ways that you can. So if you have high blood pressure, get a blood pressure kit and uh, take your blood pressure every once in a while. I wouldn't say like no more than once a day, maybe even once a week. Uh, but take your blood pressure and make sure that you're kind of in the right range that you've been told by your family doctor. And if you're diabetic, to, to be very careful about, you know, checking your sugars uh, to make sure that they are in control because all of those things will pay dividends in future. So in, you know, two, three years time, your, your risk will, will be coming down as opposed to going up if it wasn't controlled. And exercise, of course. try to. And I know, you know, maybe you're somewhere where it snows, you know, get yourself a gym membership. I, I also think it's really important to do all the things uh, to prevent covid even if we're saying take masks down keep the mask on there's no there's no harm in keeping a mask on you know be very careful about those things but still go out and be social you know have the joy of being social go to the gym and be in a class but just stand 6 feet from someone and keep your mask on do the things that you need to do because you're at extra risk if you have cardiovascular disease but also feel that joy because i'm sure you know, the, the endorphins that you get from being social and uh, will really, you know, also help to prevent cardiovascular disease. So, all of those things are really important.
1: And our experts agree if you experience signs of a heart attack or stroke, you need to go to the hospital.
2: You know, if you're having a heart attack or signs of a heart attack, you really should be just, it shouldn't be a, about what's going on in, in the uh, external world. It should be, I need to get this checked out. And I, I say to patients, you know, they often apologize when it's busy with COVID. I, I shouldn't have come. I wasn't hard out. The only reason we know that is because we did all these tests and absolutely should have come. You did the right thing and, and we got the best possible outcome. You're not having a heart attack you know, or a stroke or, or whatever. But the only reason I can say that is because you did come in. It's definitely a problem that people, people clearly hesitate uh, when, you know, there's a, a pandemic going on and, and the, the numbers are high.
1: For people living with heart disease and stroke, COVID-19 has hit hard. Backlogs in diagnosis and treatment will have consequences. If you're experiencing symptoms, seeing a doctor and getting an early diagnosis could save your life. Preventive steps can help avoid more serious complications in the future. And for anyone living with heart disease or stroke, that includes getting vaccinated. Some vital heart and stroke research has also been delayed or diverted by COVID-19. Now we're making up for lost time. If you'd like to ensure life-saving heart and stroke research continues, go to heartandstroke.ca and make a lasting impact. Thank you, Dr. Adzema and Dr. Kron for your expertise. And thank you, Paul, for sharing your story. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for upcoming topics on mental health and what people don't know about stroke. Thanks for listening to The Beat and a special thanks to our donors for making this podcast possible. Subscribe now to stay informed, get inspired and rediscover hope. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast so we can reach even more listeners. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until next time, I'm Caroline Lavallée.